Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode of Risk, you'll hear Dana Gold. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it was worse than a million Hitlers. <laughs> that and more. But before we start, I just want to say, you know, getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes up time. Leasing a postage meter, that's expensive with multi-year commitments and hidden fees. But we know a better way. Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. You can even get postage discounts. You can save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Polyrhythmics behind me now. This today is our annual Live from San Francisco episode. We returned to the San Francisco Sketch Fest in 2014, and boy, did I, did I have a good time in San Francisco this time around? I guess the festival organizers know me well enough to have put me up this time in a hotel called Kabuki, right in the middle of Japantown. And my first night, I had this fella over just the most beautiful and friendliest Chinese guy. And at one point, I found myself removing my face from his backside <laughs> to get a breath of air. And I found myself saying, where in creation did you come from? And he looked back and smiled and said, San Francisco. <laughs> it was also such a treat to spend some time with my dear friend Dixie De La Tour when I was in San Fran. She is the host of the legendary storytelling show, Body Storytelling. If you ever make it to San Fran, check out a body storytelling show. They're the greatest. Now we're gonna run this whole live set without interruption, and we're gonna start with the magnificent character actor, writer, and storyteller, Stephen Tobolowski. You may remember him from great movies like Groundhog Day and uh, Memento. He also has his own podcast called The Tobolowski Files. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Here he is live at San Francisco Sketch Fest. This is Stephen Tobolowski with a story we call Opening Night. Opening Night. 
This is a true story. Back in 1984, I had one of the greatest opportunities of my life. I got the job to direct the New York premiere of the Miss Firecracker contest. And, and I got the job pretty much because I was living with the playwright at the time, but at this point everything was on the resume. The first thing I learned when I went to New York to direct a show was that you could cast your friends and that's what I did. I cast all my friends in the show and for the lead in the show I cast Holly Hunter. Holly and I had known each other for a few years. We had just played Sweethearts in a play on Broadway which did not succeed and we had known each other for a few years before that. And this role, I want to make it clear, I cast Holly in it not just because she was my buddy, but because this was the quintessential Holly Hunter role before there were Holly Hunter roles. She was Carnell Scott in the Miss Firecracker contest was tough, but inside was incredibly vulnerable. That was Holly, tough as nails. So we began rehearsing, and as we began rehearsing, I had the first sense of risk, is that when you cast all of your friends, you were at risk of screwing up and ruining all of their lives. And then what would happen to my relationship with Beth, Beth Henley, who wrote the play, if I screwed up, it would not only kill her career, but what would happen in terms of our relationship? And these were the things I felt I was at risk for, but life is funny. None of that happened. I had a bigger surprise in store for me. It was about a week before the show opened, and I got called into Lynn Meadows' office. She was the executive producer of the Manhattan Theater Club, and Beth and I went over, and Holly was sitting there, and someone was trying to kill Holly. And this was not new news, it was old news. This guy was a certifiable stalker who had been following her for the last couple years and he kept writing these notes saying, you'll never know when, you'll never know where, but sometime when you leave the theater, I will be there and that will be it. So now, what do we do? First thing to do is ask Holly, are you up for continuing with this? And Holly, totally courageous throughout, said, hell yeah, screw him, you never let the bad guys win. Great. Now, the next bit of news Lynn told us was that the guy had bought a ticket for opening night. And he had used a credit card to buy a ticket. So, you don't have to be smart necessarily to be a creep. We found out that his address was somewhere in Maryland. We didn't know if he lived there, but that meant it was across interstate lines, which meant we could call the FBI, which we did. We could call the New York police, which we did. The theater hired a guard, with a private detective with a gun to follow Holly to make sure she was safe. And now we progressed. If you're familiar with the New York theater schedule, you rehearse during the day, you do the show late at night, and then you continue to rehearse, and everything was going fine until the day of the show. 
The day of the show in rehearsal, I could see sort of cracks in Holly's tough-as-nails veneer. Almost everything she did on stage had that kind of bleeding, breathing vulnerability. And if you know about Beth's work, Beth's characters are very passionate, very heartfelt, but you got to play them straight, and you got to play them tough, or it can look sentimental and kind of stink up the joint. So Holly, I was, I was nervous about where Holly was mentally at that time in the performance, and afterwards I gave her a note, and I said, Holly, everything you're doing is exactly what you should be feeling, but I would put up a little more defense. I, I wouldn't show the other people on stage exactly what you're feeling. And Holly said, okay, sure. We finished rehearsal. I told everybody, you rest up, you go out there, and we'll give them hell tonight. Assistant stage manager came up to me and told me that Holly wanted to talk to me. I headed for the dressing room, and they said, no, 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 she's down in the basement. I went down to the basement of the Manhattan Theater Club, which is like the graveyard for old props and and set pieces for shows. There were old living room sets and old dining room sets, old kitchens. And I come out of the elevator, and Holly is alone at the end of the hallway in the kitchen area, holding what looked like a butcher knife against her leg. It could have been a butter knife, looked like a butcher knife. <laughs> Slapping it against her leg and going, you motherfucking son of a bitch. You never give an actor a note on opening night, which is correct. If there are any young directing students out there, don't give <laughs> actors notes on opening night. They have a lot on their minds. <laughs> but I could tell that we were going down a wrong mental path for opening night. So I'm starting to walk toward Holly, and I said, you know, Holly, you're absolutely right. I shouldn't have said it, but you know, we all have a lot riding on this. I know that there's a lot of extra strain tonight. And as I got closer and closer to Holly, I was finally able to grab her hand that had the knife, grab her other hand, and we began to wrestle in the basement of the Manhattan Theater Club. Now, I weigh about 100 pounds more than Holly. So I was able to press her down on the ground and hold the knife out and lay on her with all of my weight, <laughs> just flat on the ground. Holly began crying on the ground, and I said, Holly, we're not going to do this. She was crying and said, we're not? I said, no. We have been friends too long to let some stupid play get in the way of our friendship. She said, we're not? I said, Holly, you know what we're going to do tonight? And she said, what? I said, we're going out to dinner. We're gonna go out and eat Italian food. And she said, we are? I said, and maybe we'll even go to a movie. She said, but tonight's opening night, the critics are coming. I said, screw them. They'll come back some other time. And she said, but what about the audience? I said, can you believe how happy these people are gonna be when they find out they have an evening that's completely free? <laughs> Holly, listen, you are brilliant in this show. And we all have a lot riding on this show, and it's unfair, 
unfair for you to have to deal with this and these circumstances now. We're going out to eat. I went over and called Lynn Meadow, who was the executive producer of the theater. I said, Lynn, I just talked to Holly, and we're not going to do opening night tonight. We're going to go out and have Italian food. And Lynn, not only wise here, wise here, said, right. I'll call the critics. I'll call them. And I said, Lynn, you could do me another favor, too. Could you call the rest of the members of the cast and the crew and tell them that they're all invited to dinner? We're all going out. We're going to go to P&G's. We're going to have Italian food. And she said, I will. Opening night of the Miss Firecracker contest in New York did not happen. We all went out and had Italian food. The audience showed up, including the stalker who was arrested. A week later, we opened for the critics. The show was an enormous success. It ran for a year. It got a contract for a movie, which Holly starred in. The people from Broadcast News saw the production, cast Holly in a leading role in that movie, and she was on her way up the food chain. And that's when I, as a director, learned one of the most important rules of show business is that the show does not have to go on. Thank you. Stephen Tabalowski! I love that story, um, and also it, uh, I think I myself am also proof that you don't have to be smart to be a creep. <laughs> Although I do think that I would probably lose in a knife fight with uh, Holly Hunter. <laughs> Our next storyteller has such an incredible resume. He has done producing and writing and acting for The Simpsons. Uh, he's been on Seinfeld. He has a huge stand-up career. An amazing guy. Please welcome to the stage, Dana Gold! Thank you, everyone. I wanted to tell you a very brief story about a, a period of time in my life when I made a living writing threatening letters to Holly Hunter. This is an awkward. <laughs> I wanted to tell you about a, uh, a very close friend of mine. When I was a child, I loved horror movies. They were my sports. And then when I became older and became ironic, uh, I learned to love really bad horror movies. <laughs> And my favorite film uh, was always a little film called Plan 9 from Outer Space, which a lot of people know about. And, uh, and I just adored that movie. And um, when I was in college at the University of Massachusetts, I found the lobby card from the movie with Vampira on it. I had it in my dorm room, then later in the apartment, and that thing just went with me into Boston when I became a comedian, into another apartment, out to San Francisco, where I worked as a comedian, down to Los Angeles. 
And right around the time the movie Ed Wood came out, the bio film of the director, I was doing something for the, uh, which allowed me to meet uh, the real person that played Vampyra. I was interviewing her for something. I knew someone who knew her. Long story short, uh, I met her, we became friends. I interviewed her. She was a very interesting person. By the time I met her, she was in her mid-70s. After I interviewed her, I wrote her a very long thank you letter. She wrote me back. And in the early 1990s, as the internet was just getting up steam, I became someone's pen pal. I learned a lot about her. You know, she was very famous for a very brief period of time in Los Angeles in the mid-1950s. People come to Los Angeles to be, if there's one thing that's unique to Los Angeles more than any other city, it's that no one who lives there wants to be who they are. And as a result, they drive themselves insane trying to be someone they're not so they can prove that the person that they were is actually better than what their parents said they were, who they don't believe in the first place, yet they have to become a third person to prove them wrong. <laughs> Bruce Jenner doesn't have to look like that. <laughs> By which I mean like a dude underwater. But I met uh, Myla and we became uh, friends and I learned a lot about her. As I said, she was famous. She created this character of Vampyra in the mid-1950s. She was also a very famous beatnik persona. She was best friends with James Dean. She hung out with Orson Welles. She was a part of that whole 1950s scene. And then right after her show went off the air, and she was the toast of Hollywood for about two years, and then James Dean died in a horrible car accident. A scandal rag linked her to his murder because she had sent him a postcard of her as Vampira sitting in front of an open grave that said, having a good time, wish you were here. And they had sent it to each other as a joke, but that got in the paper. And literally, James Dean Crazies tried to kill her. And so she had to move to New York for several years, literally to just not be killed in her house by uh, exuberant fans. And eventually she moved back to Los Angeles, but her career never picked up, and she was basically destitute for years, up to the point where I called her and interviewed her. You know, you see these people, you don't realize, my God, they're so famous, everybody knows who they are. I mean, if you look at a goth, she invented that look, and she doesn't have a phone. You know, she lives in a room, in a converted garage. We became very good friends, and then one day I was home, went, got the mail, and it was a letter from Myla. Her name was Myla Nermi. I'm being evicted from my home, and I don't have the resources to find a place to live. Will you help me? And at the time, I had just started working on The Simpsons, and my wife and I had just had our first baby, and the one luxury that I did not have to give anyone was time. So I went to a store in North Hollywood, California called Halloween Town. And the reason I live in Los Angeles is because it has several full-time Halloween stores. <laughs> and I walked into the store and I pointed to a Vampira t-shirt on the wall and I just said very simply, do you know anybody that I could pay to help me find the woman on that shirt, an apartment? And the woman said, yes, I do. As if my coming was predicted in their ancient texts. 
One day, a man with no tattoos will enter the store. Be not afraid! And I met a guy who uh, looked like Alice Cooper, named Matt. And I met his girlfriend, who also looked like Alice Cooper, named Gabrielle. And together, Matt and Gabrielle and I combed Los Angeles until we found Vampira, the perfect place to live. And it was not easy because you have a woman in her late 70s on a fixed income who cannot walk upstairs, who cannot walk over four lanes of traffic, who must live within two blocks of a grocery store, and she has a dog and a cat, and I fucking hate them both. <laughs> because her dog was a Jinda, which is a Korean police dog. Now think of the North Koreans. <laughs> this is the dog that their police thinks is scary. And it was losing a lot of fur. And when I would come over the house, it would come near me and get an erection. Now, I'm not a dog erection expert. Spoiler alert. But I don't think it was affectionate. I think it was more along the lines of, after I bite you, you're getting raped. <laughs> so Matt and Gabrielle and I find a bungalow in one of the last few bungalow courts in Hollywood, and it is perfect. And we help Mila move, and as we move, we find $2,000 that she had squirreled away, like 100 here and 200 there, that she had forgotten about 400 in a book. People from the Depression do that. <laughs> so I'm sitting in her a bungalow, and we've moved her in, and she's almost crying. She's so happy. She's sitting there. She has her apartment. She has more money than she thought she had. Her worries are over, and I'm looking out the window, and I just allow myself one brief second to think, Oh, this was good. This was a really good thing. And as I start to think that, all I hear is, ow, 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 ow. And I look to see that her dog has bit Gabrielle on the boob. <laughs> or was nursing. Uh, and the day ended at Cedars-Sinai emergency room where I learned how they use a suction pump to remove dog saliva from breast puncture wounds. Great story if it ends there, right? No. Along that time, my career uh, started to pick up and I was on television and I was on Seinfeld. Myla said, uh, I like you because you're working now but you're not a Hollywood phony. She hated Hollywood phonies. But Hollywood is built on phonies. The entire definition of Hollywood is phoniness. The best film about Hollywood ever made is Sunset Boulevard. And in Sunset Boulevard, you have the character of Max Mayerling, who lives with Norman Desmond. Now, he is her butler in the film, but what we realize is that he's not her butler. He's actually a director, and he's her ex-husband. And he's pretending to be her butler because he wants to stay near her. And it's played by Otto von Stroheim 
who was a very famous actor and director back in the 30s and 40s, who came to America saying he was the child of German aristocrats. He was actually the child of German hat makers. So what you have here is Otto von Stroheim pretending to be an aristocrat, playing a guy who's a director pretending to be a butler. That is the definition of Hollywood. <laughs> and then one day I got a call from the Russian woman that ran Myla's little unit that she had died. And I had to go down there and ID her. And I did see uh, her dog really step in shit on this one. Milo also had a cat. And Milo's job in life was to keep the dog and the cat separate. Because the dog, as I think I've said, was the worst thing alive. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it was worse than a million Hitlers. <laughs> but the dog was there and it hadn't uh, eaten or for about 48 hours because Mila hadn't passed away. Animal control comes and I'm there with animal control. They go, uh, what's in here? And as I'm about to say, don't open that door, he opens the door, the cat runs out, the dog kills the cat, and that's a death sentence for the dog. Because if you kill an animal in front of an animal control officer, you're shit out of luck. Now, when you plan a funeral for a woman named Vampira, you have to deal with the Church of Satan. I did not know this until they called me. And I would use the word jubilant. Because the lead dude from the Church of Satan wanted to drive Mila in his hearse because he wanted it to be the hearse that drove Vampira to her grave. And I thought, cool, free hearse. And then it slowly became the Church of Satan world's longest church procession. And I realized that the Church of Satan is really all about the Church of Satan. They're not evil, they just believe in the ultimate indulgence. If I were to boil down the Church of Satan into one simple sentence, it would be, if you like ice cream, eat a bucket. <laughs> but the cemetery wouldn't let them do it because as the woman who Ran the cemetery said, it would be macabre. <laughs> you know, if you work at a cemetery, <laughs> but my relationship with Myla started with letters. And I wanted to read you a part of uh, the last letter that I wrote her, that I read at her service. And then there's a funny ending. <laughs> I don't have real feelings. <laughs> Dear Milo, well, this is awkward. You'll be happy to know that your passing made quite a splash. The LA Times, the New York Times, Time Magazine, CNN, the AP, they all covered you. 
Now, this is certainly none of my business, but your cause of death was listed as natural causes, which means that you went as far as you could go. Do you not have, in that case, some sort of inkling? Do you think to yourself, well, I have five trips to the bank left. Now four. Natural causes is what the coroner said, and I asked him why people's hearts stop when they're asleep. Why don't they drop in the street just as often? And he told me that I had it backwards. You go to sleep because your brain isn't getting enough oxygen, and then your heart stops. He also said that not all old people fall and break their hip. Sometimes their hip just breaks and they fall. I didn't ask him. <laughs> he also said, 84 years old, she passed away in her sleep. She got the dream. It makes you wonder about the goals and aspirations of people who work in the LA coroner's office. Many people want a cool car. <laughs> but your brain loses oxygen, you go to sleep. And what he didn't say was, and that's your life. Now, I would be lying if I said I didn't hope that we would meet again someday in some fashion. I don't pretend to know what, if anything, happens after you die. You do, of course, but you're being tight-lipped about it, I assume. <laughs> Like most rational people, I figure heaven is a nice small town with clouds on the floor. And everyone who has ever died is walking around in their prime, having a great old time. As remote as the chances of that actually happening are, you'll forgive me if that is how I think of you. And somewhere in that town is a coffee shop and you're holding court in a back booth with James Dean and your disreputable pot-smoking beatnik pals. And if that is the case, when the time does come, in the far distant future, when the bell over the door rings and I walk in as I approach your booth, I trust you will slide over and let me in. Now, if you go to Myla Nurmi's Wikipedia page or any biography on her, it will say, Finnish-born actress, Myla Nurmi. Because Myla, who knew a phony when she saw one, was famous for having come to Hollywood from Finland as the uh, niece of a famous Olympic uh, gymnast named Pavo Nermi. And that was one of the more interesting things about her that helped her get her foot in the door. And after the service, I had all of her stuff and I was going through it and I stumbled across her birth certificate. And there it was right on the top, place of birth, Gloucester, Massachusetts. <laughs> Tattoos, uh, but no dog erection expert. <clears throat> Our next storyteller has a podcast called The NATO Sessions. He is a, uh, he, well, he's right here in San Francisco every Wednesday at the Dark Room, has a show called The Business. Please welcome to the stage Mr. NATO Green. So 
I grew up in San Francisco. I was born in 1975, which means that I was a child in the thick of the gay rights movement. I grew up going to gay pride parades. Uh, I was at the gay pride parade that's portrayed in the movie Milk. I think of myself as being raised among gays, sort of the Tarzan of gays. Uh, <laughs> one of my main memories of my childhood is that I'm not sure I saw a fully clad adult until I was nine. Uh, <laughs> Uh, according to my mom, my first complete sentence was, Mommy, why is that man rubbing himself on that pole? <laughs> when my parents left town, they would leave me to stay uh, in a house with some family friends. It was a house full of gay folks who, uh, the nickname for me was the Contessa. So that was my childhood nickname. Uh, how did you grow up? So uh, my, my other big memory from childhood is of being in trouble. I was in trouble all the time. I was expelled from several preschools. I don't remember doing what I did to get in trouble. I was told later that what I did was mostly attack other children and destroy their art projects. I would like go into the bathroom at school and pee all over the rolls of toilet paper. Um, so, the teachers and the parents were always telling my parents that like I was a bad seed and a problem child and I was going to be a criminal when I grew up and that I was going to be trouble. And then I was in elementary school in the early 80s when the panic about child molesters swept the country. So we just got all these drills about like, you know, stranger danger and don't get in the van and if someone touches you, say no and run away and tell someone. I remember these nonprofit organizations would come to my elementary school, rooftop elementary school here in San Francisco, where, and they would do workshops for the kids. There would be assemblies about like self-defense against molesters. Like we had to learn to, to twist and punch to get out of a, a grip of someone and and also, the thing about it, though, was that, like, we didn't know that much about sex, but it was exciting that people wanted to talk about it, even if it was about molesters. So, <laughs> and there were typically, as is the case with most nonprofits, a lot of the employees were these attractive young women who would come and they would meet with you one-on-one -on -one to hear if you had anything you needed to tell them. And that was exciting, to have these attractive young women want to talk to you about sex. So I was like, what are you going to do to me in the van? You know, like, it was... <laughs> I'll eat your apple, you know, was, I was into it. Uh, and then as a teenager, there used to be this agency in San Francisco, maybe it's still there, and in retrospect, it's curious that there wasn't more vetting, but it was like a jobs program for youth, and so they would like have bulletin boards, and people would call up and be like, basically, send me a boy. And then they would be like, oh, we'll put that on, in, on an index card on a bulletin board. And then I would go in and be like, I can be a boy, I know how to do that. Um, they didn't say, send me a boy, they would say like, you know, yard work, which is code for boy, right? It's, it wasn't mysterious. Babysitting, code for girl, yard work, moving furniture, code for boy. It was like, I got it. So I got this job for this guy, and he would have me like, we would go to a gardening store and I would get like bags of soil and giant pots for his potted plants, and he was an artist and he taught me how to stretch canvas for his paintings, uh, and we would talk, and there were cool talks, and I was into it, and it was a fine gig, and it was relatively easy, and he seemed to just like to chat and stuff. And then, you know, after a couple weeks, uh, I'd been stretching his canvas, he showed me his, some of his photo exhibits, and he asked me if he could take uh, some pictures of me, uh, and I said, okay, sure, take some pictures of me. And then he took some pictures, and then he asked if I would um, take my shirt off. 
And I said no, not necessarily because it felt sexual, but because I basically looked like this at 16, and I was like prematurely 38, and so I just didn't, in the, in the body area, and I just didn't feel like the love handle hairy back hair thing was, I didn't wanna, it wasn't for me. So, um, so, and then a couple weeks go by, and uh, you know, and we would go to the to a store to get some supplies for his house or whatever, and and then we go get coffee. Uh, he'd be like, "Hey, do you want to go get coffee?" And then he'd start talking to me about you know how I like to masturbate, and the thing about that was that that didn't immediately set off alarms for me because as a 16-year-old boy, basically all I'm doing with my friends anyway is watching Pink Floyd's The Wall and talking about masturbating. And that was like the gist of my conversations with my friends. was like, hey man, tonight my parents are gone, I masturbated in every room in the house. Uh, <laughs> oh really? You know, I fucked a popple. Uh, I beat off on the cat to watch it clean itself. Like it was... <laughs> That's just what was happening. So, so it just felt like I'm, I'm in control. I'm a, you know, I didn't feel threatened. I was into it. That's what I was talking about anyway. And also it was like cool to have a grown up talking to me about masturbation for some reason. And then the next week I came back and he was like, hey, would you vacuum? And so I started vacuuming. And he was like, while you vacuum, I'm gonna take a shower. And I was like, okay, whatever. So he gets in the shower and I'm vacuuming slowly because as everybody knows, for $5 an hour, you work slowly when the boss isn't looking. That's just fucking what you do. If you don't know that, you're an idiot. So you're working too hard. Um, so he gets in the shower, but he leaves the door open. And so I vacuum for a while, and then he gets out of the shower and just walks around naked. He puts black socks on, knee high, and then just walks around naked for a while. Being like, would you do get this area? And he's like, oh, by the way, would you go vacuum in the bedroom? And then I go vacuum in the bedroom, and there's just stacks of porn everywhere. And at a certain point, I just, I was like, oh, this is kind of weird, I guess. Hmm. And I somehow, I don't remember, like, deciding to stop working for him. I just happened to stop working for him. So I didn't think anything of it, and probably 15 years passed. Still live in San Francisco, and I'm driving around, and I'm with a friend, and I drive by Upper Market, and I say, oh yeah, that's the house. I worked in that house once, and then I say what happened. And I said, oh yeah, there was a guy there. It was a little bit weird. He talked to me about masturbating, asked me to take my shirt off, took a shower with the door open. Uh, oh, that guy was trying to fuck me. Uh, <laughs> like, at the time, I had had no sexual experience, and so I'm still not good at reading the signs. And, I was like, oh, I totally could have fucked that guy. And, and I, it terrified me. And it, it still scares me to tell you this now to like, oh, this guy, I could have fucked this guy. And it took me 15 years to realize that that was the case and that it didn't even occur to me to tell anyone. And after all of that preparation and the warnings and the fear, it was just like, oh, what, it, that I had never mentioned it to anybody. I hadn't even talked about it with my friends. It just felt like a nothing that passed by. And so I've been trying to figure it out. And there are a couple things. One is that, like, on the one hand, we had all this, these warnings about predators. But on the other hand, I had grown up in San Francisco where there was just this attitude of, like, well, I guess that's just his thing, you know? <laughs> who, who am I to judge? Uh, it's not my thing, but... You know what I mean? And there are, 
I've met gay folks who grew up in other parts of the country where there's not a gay community and they're isolated and they have positive sexual experiences as children with older people. And so I'm not here coming up pro having sex with children <laughs> as adults. <laughs> I'm just acknowledging that it's complicated. And <laughs> I'm not 100% certain that there were no circumstances where I would have let an older man fuck me at 16. Like, I mean, certainly if it had been a hot older woman, would have been fucking the best time of my life. Uh, and now, like, partly I wasn't, didn't find this guy attractive, and partly I just didn't see having sex with a dumpy old artist for $5 an hour <laughs> as like a central part of my career plan. And the other thing I realized is that even though I had been prepared and warned about this kind of thing, that wasn't what, if we want to stipulate that I shouldn't have had sex with that guy, what got me out of that situation was not all the preparation for dealing with sexual predators, it was that I'm still then and today the same kid that was getting kicked out of preschools for attacking people, that I just have this reflexive refusal anytime a fucking grown-up or politician or cop or teacher or any type of authority figure tells me to do something, my first impulse is to, no, go fuck yourself. And that's what kept me from fucking that dude, you know? Because most people are conflict averse and are trying to appeal to authority figures, and otherwise I probably would have just gone like, uh, who am I to say no? And this is what I'm saying is, we need to teach the children to say no, go fuck yourself, to every authority figure, that children need to learn their first reflex is to resist. Thank you. Awesome. We have one more storyteller for tonight, but before we finish up the show here, I just wanted to remind everyone that uh, you can find Risk at our website or at iTunes, but you can also find our other company, The Story Studio, at thestorystudio.org if you're interested in taking workshops in storytelling. We did one today upstairs here. It was a blast, really good time. So uh, contact us at thestorystudio.org if you want some training. Our last uh, storyteller tonight has a podcast called The Bone Zone. Uh, <laughs> he's done Jimmy Kimmel and Conan and Last Comic. He's going to be in Melbourne at the Comedy Festival there in April. Please welcome to the stage, Brendan Walsh. Podcast called The Bone Zone. <laughs> when he says it like that, it makes it sound stupid. <laughs> Say it with a snarky tone. <laughs> well, this is a story about when I also was 16, but no dudes or chicks wanted to fuck me. But people liked beating me up. I was 16 years old. I grew up in Philadelphia. You know, weird kind of neighborhood. It's a weird city still it's kind of stuck in the 50s a little bit like just diners and people smoking buses I don't know <laughs> it's very 50s like and me and my friends were uh, our big thing when I was like 16 you know we wanted to go get beer we, we had an older guy who would buy us beer so we'd meet up at this park 
and then go uh, get this guy to buy us beer, and then we'd go drink it in another park. And this one particular night, um, there were like five of us, and, and we, we go to the park, and, and the, the three of our friends, they had girlfriends that were with them, so they went to walk them home, because we don't want any girls hanging out with us while we're drinking in the park. And they leave us there, and it's just me and this other guy, Dan. We're waiting for them to come back so we can go get our beer. And there's like these basketball courts in the park. And the one court, there are uh, like, you know, five guys playing basketball, like grown-ups, but they, in hindsight, they were like probably 24, you know? But like when you're 16, it's like, oh, there's some grown men over there. <laughs> Those grown men. <laughs> So they're playing basketball, and then on the bleachers next to the other basketball court were, uh, were like eight assholes from the neighborhood. I knew these guys. They went to a different high school, but they were just jerk-offs. They were the kind of guys who would, like, fucking steal your dad's car, and they live next door to you. It's just like, they, you know, they would, like, rob their neighbor's houses. Real pieces of shit. And so me and my friend Dan are waiting for our friends to come back, and those guys, they're already drinking beer on the bleachers, these eight assholes. And I'm wearing, I just bought a new Phillies baseball cap. And I'm wearing that. And me and Dan are just talking. Those guys are playing basketball. And then one of the assholes on the bleacher goes, hey, man, that's a nice hat. Can I see that hat? And I was like, god damn it. You know, like, <laughs> what do you know? You got to let them see the hat. What do you say, no? And then they're just going to take it anyway. So I was like, okay, fine. And I like give him the hat. And he's like looking at it and he's got a can of Bush beer in his hand and he goes, that's a nice hat. You think it'll hold beer? And I was like, I mean, no, don't, like why are you gonna do that? I mean, and then the guy just takes a beer, pours it in my hat and then throws it at me. And it hits me in the chest and lands on the ground. And I'm like, well, fuck. Now what do you do? You know, I'm 16. But I knew I had this. It's like, well, you can't just pick up your hat and walk away. You know, you'll just never live that down. So then I just, I say to him, I'm like, all right, let's go. I guess we got to fight. I guess we got to fight now, you know? And I wasn't like a good fighter, you know, I didn't really get in a lot of fights, but uh, I was like, no, we gotta fight. His friends were all laughing, oh, just get the fuck out of here, faggot, or whatever, you know? And I'm like, no, we gotta fight. And they're like, hey, you just do what's good for you. He was like a hockey player, this like high school hockey player guy who poured the beer in my hat. And I'm like, no, no, come on, asshole. Like just, you know, dick sucker. I don't know, what do I have to say? <laughs> just come on, we both know what we're here for now. And then the guy comes down the bleachers, comes, uh, he was like a few bleachers up, and I was like right at the bottom, like, Ugh. and he like comes running down the bleachers and throws a punch at me, at my head, and it misses, and I just punched him in the face, and he just fell on the fucking ground. So then I got on top of him, put my knees on his shoulder, and just started fucking punching his fucking face in, you know? It just felt so fucking good. Just like, yeah, motherfucker, ha ha. And then I feel, uh, and then a fist hits my other head. I'm like, oh yeah, he's got seven friends here. This isn't gonna go down like it does in the movies <laughs> where they're like, hey, leave him alone. I think he's had enough. They're like, 
wow, no. That's, we're... So then I start getting, uh, you know, punched and kicked and kind of get dragged off of them. And they stand us both back up, you know, and they're like, all right, now, uh, you know, they rough me up a little bit. And they're like, okay, now you guys continue fighting. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, this is, this sucks. And, uh, and I don't want to fight because I'm just thinking, how do I fucking get out of here? Because these guys are just going to kill me now. And I'm trying, I'm, I'm like talking to the guy, you know, I'm like, hey, I don't, uh, I don't really want to fight any, <clears throat> and I'd like sucker punch him and try to get, <clears throat> and then all the other guys start kicking me and hitting me. And the whole time this is going on, I'm thinking, why aren't those men jumping in? They saw the whole thing happen from the beginning. The basketball men, <laughs> the 24-year-old grown men watching me get beat up. And it goes back and forth. They stand us up, make us fight. And then I, you know, if I get the best of them. And then they just decide, fuck this. Let's just kick the shit out of that guy. So I'm on the ground just in a fetal position and just getting like kicked and punched and pummeled and like, you know, just, well, I hope this ends soon. You know, it's not, it can only go on so long. And then finally the guys, one of the basketball guys goes, okay, okay, okay. I think he had enough, you know. And uh, he goes up and, you know, him and another guy kind of get him off of me, gets me up, and I'm just a fucking bloody mess. And they're like, all right, just go home. I'm like, yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for saving the day. Thanks for waiting to the last possible second to jump in. And so I start walking home. It was, you know, six blocks away from my house. And I'm walking down the street, and I'm pretty banged up and, yeah, really bloody. And then I start hearing, like, Frankenstein level like mob noise of yeah I'll get them next I'm like oh fuck the basketball guys didn't keep them at the park they're looking for me now they want to beat me up some more so I'm like I go down the street and uh, you know I can hear them they're like you know they're close they're about a block away and I go into this person's yard they had like a driveway and I, I just, uh, they had a car in there, so I crawled underneath the car and just laid underneath the car and heard the guys, like, you know, searching for me. I didn't see any feet around me or anything, but they were real close. And I laid under that car for a while, you know, because I didn't want to deal with that shit anymore. And I finally, you know, I think the coast is clear. I don't hear anything for a while, and I get up, go, you know, walk the rest of the way home. And then my dad was there. My dad was a firefighter, you know, so he had, like, the night off or whatever, and he's like, well, what happened? Where was it? Princeton Playground? All right, get in the van. He had a van. <laughs> Time. <laughs> and my dad grabs a baseball bat, and he's like, get in the van. I'm like, I don't. What are we going to do, Dad? I don't think this is going to end well. I don't, think, I don't think you're allowed to beat those guys up with a baseball bat. Street justice. So I'm like, okay, fine. I guess I'll get in the van. I don't know. I'm all beat up. It's, I'm exhausted. It's exhausting getting kicked for like 10 minutes. And we drive to the park, and uh, those guys aren't there. Basketball guys are still there. They didn't. They, they got to finish their game. The fucking basketball guys. And uh, but the, none of the guys who beat me up were there. My dad, he notices. He goes, "Are you feeling okay?" Like not, you know. Obviously, I wasn't feeling great, but. He thought I might have a concussion, you know, being a fireman, he knew whatever, he dealt with people who were fucked up all the time. So he's like, you might have a concussion, I think we should go to the hospital. Go to the hospital, and uh, when you go to the hospital for something like that, 
the cops show up, you know, when they're like, what happened to you? Oh, a bunch of guys beat me up. They're like, okay, well, we'll get some cops in here so you can talk to them. After I'm done at the hospital, I had like a broken nose and a concussion. And then I had to go to the police station and the cops had uh, pictures of all these neighborhood assholes and they're like, any of these guys, the guys who beat you up? And it was like, yeah, him, 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 and him. It's like, there's fucking guys I see all the time. There's twins, Timmy and Tommy, real fucking creative. Joe and Frank and uh, they're like okay and they uh, went and I don't know what happened I didn't have to go to court or anything that part's foggy like but the next day or later that week one of my friends he's like hey man those guys got in trouble for beating you up they're gonna fucking kill you now <laughs> I'm like what the fuck so I had to get something to protect myself and I didn't know how to get a gun or anything and I wasn't going to get a knife. Like, I was seriously like, what can I do? And I'm thinking like, oh, I don't want to stab somebody. Oh, that's <laughs> terrible. That'd be awful. So like, I don't know where to get a gun, but what are you going to Like, I, you can't be a 16-year-old with a gun. That's just going to set you on a whole different path in fucking <laughs> life. So there was this place called the Funko Mart in downtown Philadelphia. It sold like bongs and shit, but it also sold brass knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like total like 50s. Yeah, I was born in the 50s. A fucking street gang. Yeah, get him. <laughs> Pour some beer in his head. All right, I'm going to get some brass knuckles and fucking clobber you clowns. <laughs> so I get the brass knuckles. So I have the brass knuckles in my pot. You know, I carry them around in my jacket. Only had the brass knuckles for a couple days. Me and my friends go out one night. We go to a, a Roy Rogers, which is a, a fast food place on the East Coast. And uh, we would go there, me and my teenage friends, and we'd cause a ruckus and get kicked out. You know, we would just act like assholes in the, in the fast food place until we got kicked out. And we'd run laughing. Ha, 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 we just got kicked out. <laughs> and uh, so we do that one night. And when we all are getting kicked out and running out of the Roy Rogers, there's a cop car just happens to be coming down the street at the same time. So all my friends, every, we all scatter and stuff. And the cops are like, well, something's going on. So they start chasing us. And I start running. I kind of went off on my own and ran for a little while. And I was walking. I was like, ah, I'm not going to fucking run. You know, what are they going to do? You know, we caused a ruckus. It's nothing. And then a police van, like a paddy wagon or whatever, comes pulling around the street. And the cop gets out and he goes, uh, hey, put your hands on that car. I was like, what? He's like, put your hands on the car. Like slams me against the car and starts frisking me. And I'm like, what's this all about? You know? <laughs> Well, I'm not doing anything. Just a fucking teenager in a leather jacket getting kicked out of Roy Rogers's. But he starts frisking me and he finds the brass knuckles. And he goes, hey, what do you use these for? And I was like, I don't, nothing yet. Are you, are you allowed to do this? Can you just stop people and t find their brass knuckles? Like, you weren't supposed to. And then he puts my hands behind my back, cuffs me, and then he opens the back of the van and there are two kids in there who were about my age. And he's got me handcuffed, and he goes, is this the guy? And he goes, yeah, that's him. <laughs> and he goes, did he use these? And he goes, yeah, I guess, that's him. And the cop goes, you just got yourself a felony. Aggravated assault. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? I said, Roy Rogers. So they take me in, and it was so, like, honestly, in a situation like that, where you're in the back of a police van, being driven to jail, you have no idea what is going on. I honestly thought of, of a real possibility was we're going to pull up somewhere 
the doors are going to open and everyone's going to be like, surprise, happy birthday or whatever, even though it wasn't my birthday. But it was like, this is so fucking crazy. This just happened to people. So I get, you know, they take me to jail, process me and all that stuff. I was a juvenile. My dad had to come down. Uh, One of the cops like kind of beat me up a little bit in the jail because it started sinking in. I was in the like the sweat box, they call it. You know, it's not a cage yet. It's just a metal door to thing. And I'm like kicking the door. You fucking pigs. What are you mad? <laughs> fucking assholes. Settle down in there, Brendan. Suck my dick. Yeah. <laughs> and a cop comes in as a big fat lieutenant guy in a white shirt comes in and, uh, and he's like, you got a fucking problem? You got a fucking problem? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got a problem. I'm here. I'm in jail. I don't, I don't even know what I'm locked up for yet. He gets uh, handcuffs from another cop and handcuffs my hands behind my back and just like fucking bangs me against the walls, bangs me against these lockers, throws me into a cell. And he's like, keep acting up, I'll chain you to the fucking bars. And I'm just, fuck you. And my dad finally comes down and he's, you know, that same cop walks him back. And uh, my dad's like, hey, what? He's like, did you do it? And I was like, no, I didn't fucking, I didn't do anything. Those two kids said I beat them up. That was the whole thing. My dad goes, well, it looks like you've been in a fight. I go, yeah, because that fucking fat asshole right there was just banging me against the walls with my hand just cuffed behind my back. And he's like, oh, are you? And my dad's like, hey, settle down, pal, you know? Get out of here. So he, uh, so all this shit happens, you know, go get fingerprinted, all that shit, have to go to court eventually. There were these two kids, the two kids, uh, well, I shouldn't say any names, but uh, I remember their names, Joe and John were their names. I won't say their last names. They said I beat them up. They said I did it with brass knuckles, which was crazy because it would have caved their fucking heads in if... I mean, that's, the brass knuckles are serious business. So this, it winds up going to court, and I walk into the courtroom. I see the guy, Joe. Joe is the real asshole. John, I could tell... When I walked into the courtroom or into the waiting room, I could tell when they both saw me, they were like, oh, fuck, this... We made a mistake. That's not the guy. But they had taken it so far. They didn't have the balls to be like, you know what, we made a mistake... I know we all bought suits and everything for today. <laughs> but we really fucked up. And I could see it in their eyes. But, and John on the stand, was he, to his credit, he was like, I don't think it was him. I honestly, I, you know, seeing him here today, I, I, I don't think it was him. But the other kid, Joe, he came from a family of cops. So he was like, yeah, no, it was definitely him. Like, he, he brought it this far. So he fucking, he had to stick to his story. I get found guilty. I'm on probation for whatever. I didn't have to go to like juvenile hall or anything. So, you know, it kind of wasn't that bad, but it still sucks to be arrested for something you didn't do because you had something that you bought to protect yourself from something else that happened to you. So either way, I get found guilty. I'm on probation for a year or two or whatever it was. And I started high school. I started at a new school that year. And I show up at school and that fucking guy, Joe, he goes to this high school. And I fucking, I wanted to kill him anyway. Like I was like, I had these fantasies of like kidnapping him, beating the fuck out of him, like blindfold, like real evil fucking thoughts, you know? And I used to hang out at this convenience store across the street from the high school with all the other cigarette smoking, you know, school cutting kids. And I go over and I go, hey, there's this guy, Joe, blah, blah, blah. I'll give any of you guys 50 bucks to beat him up. I'll give you a hundred bucks if you put him in the hospital. And this one guy, Mike, this kind of real badass fucking dude who I'd see around and like we knew each other to say hi. I was glad I was on his good side. He just steps up, 
He goes, hey, just point them out to me. I'll fucking do it for free. <laughs> He's like, that guy's a fucking asshole. My girlfriend was telling me about him, but I don't know what he looks like. I was like, yeah, gladly. I'll fucking meet you. I know which bus he takes. We'll meet on the corner. So after school that day, I'm waiting on the corner, and, uh, and Joe's, while, you know, he's in line to get onto his bus, and then this guy Mike comes by, and he's like, which one is he? And I go, it's, it's that guy there. He's just about to get on the bus, and Mike takes off his baseball cap and hands it to me. He goes running over, and Joe's getting on the bus. He's got like one foot on the, on the fucking step, and the guy just comes up, yoink, fucking grabs him off the bus by his shirt collar, and it just starts kneeing him in the face over and over. And I'm holding his baseball cap like, yes. <laughs> Watching him from like a half a block away. Yeah, fucking get him. <laughs> and he fucking destroys Joe. I mean, he just beats the shit. There are cops at our school. It was a public high school in Philadelphia. So like, it only went on for about five minutes. And then these cops came running over, handcuffed Mike. And they're walking him back over to the school. And I walk by and I'm like, hey, you dropped your hat. And fucking <laughs> go and get on my bus. It's an understanding. So that, uh, the moral of the story is that, I don't know if there's a moral, but I should get out of here. I've been talking forever. Joe got me locked up for something I didn't do. Got him back. He got his ass kicked. I don't know what happened to Mike, but he never told on me. And then that same week, the guys, the twins, Timmy and Tommy, the guy Joe and the other guy Frank, fucking died in a car accident. Yeah. I was so fucking happy. And it's weird when you're young like that. In high school, like, girls are like, oh my God, did you hear Timmy and Tommy and those guys died in a car accident? I was like, good. I'm glad. How could you? Didn't they fucking rape you? What are you fucking... <laughs> so, yeah, I was glad they died and I hired a guy to beat up another guy. Thanks a lot. I love you. Good night. for this episode folks this is teddy bears behind me now and listen we have some more fantastic risk live shows coming up one on march 8th in san diego that's at the finest city improv and you can find more about tickets at risk-show.com slash tour We'll have our usual shows in New York and Los Angeles on March 27th. We are in Reno, Nevada 
on March 29th, and we're still taking pitches for the Reno show. So if you're in Reno, pitch us your story. Write to me directly at Kevin at Risk-Show.com. And on the 11th of April, we return to the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, PA. So for all the news you need about where Risk is happening next live, go to Risk-Show.com slash tour. Now, folks, I have big Big news, and that is that the Max Fun Pledge Drive is going to be happening from March 17th through March 28th. If you have ever thought of helping Risk out financially, because we very much so need it, we are listener supported. March 17th through March 28th is when you want to check out maximumfun.org/donate. If you are already a member of Maximum Fun, you can upgrade. And there are going to be a ton of amazing gifts for people who pledge, including bonus episodes of Risk. So be on the lookout. Don't forget, those two weeks are going to be very important to us. Also, don't forget that we have so many wonderful workshops and opportunities at thestorystudio.org for anyone interested in one-on-one coaching, corporate storytelling workshops, workshops you can take online in your own time, go to thestorystudio.org, the very best place to be practicing this craft. I guess the only thing left to say is, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I beat off on the cat to watch it clean itself. When he says it like that, it makes it sound stupid. And macabre. And maybe we'll even go to a movie.